Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're going to have a great time today around the Word of God. I invite you to take out your Bibles now and turn in them in the first book of the Bible to the book of Genesis and chapter number 39. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair near you, and you could take that Bible and turn in it to page 30, and you would be at Genesis chapter number 39. Now, many of us guys and many of us gals are football fans, and many of us who are football fans uh, know the name of Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick is the head coach for the New England Patriots professional football team, And Coach Belichick has won a number of championships, and he's recognized today as one of the most accomplished football coaches in our country. But you may not know about his father, his father, Steve Belichick, who is maybe considered to be the greatest football scout in American football history. Steve Farrar tells a little bit of the story. He says that Steve Belichick was an assistant coach at Navy, and his primary task was to scout the upcoming opponent and present a report to his whole coaching staff. But here's what's interesting. Up until Bill Belichick, scouting was sort of a hit-or-miss operation, and he turned it into a science. Back in the 50s, when he was this assistant coach, Army and Navy were the football powerhouses. And in 1957, Army had two All-American caliber running backs, Bob Anderson and Pete Dawkins. And they had this offense that was very prolific, but it would rarely pass the ball. And Steve Belichick had developed this philosophy of scouting, and here's what it was. He said, I want to find out what the other guys do best which is always what they want to do, especially under pressure in a big game. And of course, in those days, Army-Navy was a really big game. And then I want to take it away from them and make them do things that they are uncomfortable with. And so he spent many hours studying Army. And here was the general consensus before the game was played in the United States in 1957. The general consensus was there was a total sold-out stadium. Navy had no chance. They had no chance of beating Army's powerful running offense, but they did. And Navy shut them down by making them do what they didn't want to do, which was pass the football. And the Army team that day never could get on track, and they lost to Navy 14 to nothing. They were shut out, most powerful offense in the country. And in the locker room afterwards, a sports writer congratulated the head coach on the win, and he immediately pointed to his assistant, Belichick, and said, he won the game for us two weeks ago. In other words, the scouting report that Steve Belichick had turned in was so detailed and so exact that Navy won the game two weeks before they even stepped out onto the field to play the game. And Farrar goes on to say this. He said, you should know something about God. God hasn't just scouted your future, he has planned your future, and he didn't do it two weeks ago, 
He did it before he created the world. And that's why you are ultimately going to be a victor. You don't have to be a victim. You may think your life is over, as did Joseph when he headed into slavery and then perhaps into prison, but because of God's great eternal plan and his providential execution of that plan, Joseph became a victor, and so will you. But like Joseph, listen to these words, you must come to grips with his sovereignty and providence. It's the only path out of victim. See, God has scouted more than our life and our future. He has been intimately involved in planning our life and our future. We've been involved in a series of messages we've entitled Hope Through Hardship, Lessons from the Life of Joseph. And as we've been working our way through this series, I've been sharing with you a little formula. I call it a a Bruce formula that goes P plus P plus P equals P equals hope. And that stands for God's promises and God's providence and God's presence when we have a grip on those things will give to us perspective in hardship, which ultimately gives to us hope. That's the hope through hardship. Today, we want to talk about a little more God's providence. I've entitled this message today, God's providence, part number two. Because a couple of weeks ago, we had a message that was on God's providence, part number one. And we looked at a lot of the passages that emphasize God's providence. And we also came up with a definition of providence. And here it is. Providence, his providence, is God's careful execution of his plan in my life, your life, and the entire universe. That's what we mean when we talk about God's providence. We, we saw when we were tackling this before that he is not the direct author of sin and disaster, but he permits, he restrains, he limits, and he overrules these things according to his divine plan. Now, let's take a look at chapter number 39. I want to read from verse 19 down through the end of the chapter and invite you to follow along. Now, remember what had happened here. Joseph had been in the house of Potiphar, the head of the secret service of Pharaoh. Uh, He was running the entire thing, and then Pharaoh's wife had got him in trouble as she sought to have an affair with him. And then verse 19, it says, Now when his master, Potiphar, heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master, Potiphar, took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, Joseph was responsible for it. And the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with Joseph, and whatever Joseph did, the Lord made to prosper. Now, now today, as we work our way through this idea of God's providence, part number two, we're going to look at three principles that Joseph embraced in the hardship that he found himself in his life. And here's why they're so important. 
is that if we do not grasp these three principles as we are in our walk with God and we finally find ourselves in a situation where we're facing hardship, if we do not get a grasp on these principles, when we're in hardship, we're gonna find ourselves being angry and frustrated. We're gonna find ourselves in confusion. In fact, we'll find ourselves doubting God and being disappointed with God. So these three principles are very, very important. The first principle that Joseph embraced as he was facing hardship, now he's in jail, is that God is sovereign. This is this whole idea of his divine providence. He he began to embrace the principle of God's sovereign divine providence in his life, that there was no luck involved, there's no bad luck, there's no good luck, there's no chance, there's no accident, there's no random event God's providence says God's careful execution of his plan is is afoot in my life, in your life, and the entire universe. And he embraced that in his life. Now, we spent a lot of time a couple of weeks ago uh, unpacking a lot of the passages from the Bible that stress the fact that God is sovereign and he is working his providence out in your life and mine. We're not going to take time to review back through all of those. You might want to backtrack and and listen to that message. But here's what A.W. Tozer has said. He says, to the child of God, there is no such thing as an accident. He travels in a pointed way. Accidents, Accidents may indeed appear to befall him, and misfortune stalk his way, But these evils will be so in appearance only and will seem evils only because, listen to these words, we cannot read the secret script of God's hidden providence. Joseph doesn't know what the whole script is as he finds himself in prison. But what he does is he embraces this principle that God is sovereign. Now, you know, when you're reading through a passage like we just read through, and it says that Joseph finds himself in prison. For most of us, we just don't have any emotional reaction to that. I mean, I've never been in prison. And not only that, this prison that he finds himself in goes back thousands of years ago. What did it really mean when he suddenly finds himself in prison? Well, Howard Rutledge, on November 28, 1965, had his plane shot down and he parachuted out, was captured by the North Vietnamese and ended up in their infamous prison called the Heartbreak Hotel. And here's just, just to get a little of the emotion, what it means to suddenly be cast into prison. This is what Rutledge described. He says, when the door slammed and the key turned in that rusty iron lock, a feeling of Utter loneliness swept over me. I lay down on that cold cement slab in my six-by-six prison. The smell of human excrement burned my nostrils. A rat, large as a small cat, scampered across the slab beside me. The walls and floors and ceilings were caked with filth. Bars covered a tiny window high above the door. And I was cold and hungry. There were no books, no paper or pencils, no magazines or newspapers. 
The only colors you see are drab gray and dirty brown. Months or years may go by when you don't see the sunrise or the moon, green grass or flowers. Now, now think about his situation here. He had just been in charge of the second most powerful household in all of Egypt. He had all the perks of everything that went there. And then this crazy housewife puts him in a situation where suddenly he's now being falsely accused of attacking her sexually. And now he finds himself in prison. No doubt, the very first thought that went through his mind is, this is not fair. This is unjust. I have done nothing wrong. When I was 10 years old, in the fifth grade, my family moved from the New Jersey, New York area to the Kansas City area. And we moved halfway through the school year. So as I found myself in this new elementary school, Osage Elementary, uh, I was the new kid on the block. And one of the things we, we did at Osage Elementary is when we went out for recess for a little while, uh, when recess was over, we had to line up in lines by class. And there was always a, a particular teacher who was assigned that day um, to be the recess teacher for the day. And so my class is in this line. I'm toward the end of the line, the new kid on the block. And Craig is toward the front of the line. And Craig was our class goof. And while the recess teacher had her back turned, he was laughing around, poking people, jostling them, pushing them around, jumping back and forth in the line. And while he's doing that, this teacher hears this commotion and she spins around and she sees him. And she said, you, you're staying after school. And then she asked him this question, who are you fooling with? And I can still see this in my mind. You know, he's toward the front of the line. He turns and he looks down the line of everybody in our class. And his eyes just work his way down the line. And he comes to the new kid. And he says, Bruce. I'm like, what? I didn't do anything. You're staying after school. And it wasn't just staying after school. We stayed after school and we had to write 100 times, I will be quiet, respectful, and not disruptive when lining up after recess. 100 times. It was unfair. It was unjust. I had done nothing wrong. In fact, I'd been one of the best behaved ones in the line. Now, you multiply that times 10,000. And that's what Joseph had to be feeling. I mean, a few hours before, I'm in the penthouse. I'm eating lush, rich food. I have all these clothes. I have all these privileges. And now I'm in the pit. By the way, one of the Hebrew words that's used repeatedly that's translated prison is just that pit. I'm in the pit. And, and maybe some of us feel like we're in the pit today. Maybe not today, maybe next week or next month. And, and when you're there, you feel like this is unfair, this is unjust. 
Maybe something unfair and injustice happened to you at work or happened to you at school or, or even happened to you among the church or among your friends. Maybe you've experienced rejection and, and harshness and false accusation. Maybe, maybe you have been used by another person. Maybe you've been mistreated. Maybe you've just been overcome by this medical syndrome that's just invaded your life and you're discouraged and you say, it's just unfair, it's unfair. It's unjust. I, I, I really don't deserve this. And as he finds himself in that environment, we know that he finds hope in the fact that God is sovereign. We, we know from, from chapter 50 and verse 20, it's a verse that we'll keep going back to when, when he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What's he saying? God was sovereignly, providentially in control. And we know that he finds hope from God's presence. We've talked some about that in our study. Look at chapter 39, verse 21. While he's there in, the, in this prison, in the pit, in jail, the Lord, it says, was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Verse 23, the chief jailer ended up eventually not supervising anything under Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And so, one of the things that Joseph embraced was that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Second thing that Joseph embraced, second principle, is that God is shaping us. God is shaping us. Now, how do you take the second youngest child to a group of people who had a lot of flocks, and most of what they did is take care of flocks, how do you take a person like that and prepare them to lead the most powerful nation on the face of the planet? How do you do that? Well, one of the ways that you prepare them to shape them is you have them manage the second most significant household in all of Egypt, which was the household of Potiphar. Another way that you prepare an individual to lead the most powerful nation on the planet is to have them manage all the prisoners in a jail. Now, that's a little more of a challenge. You know, there you have the rougher, more raw group of humanity, a bunch of ornery people. And that's a real challenge to someone's skills. And if you can manage the people in the prison effectively, you're pretty well equipped to lead a nation. God is shaping us. And that's what the Bible teaches us over and over and over again as adversity and hardship comes into our life. I love the way James chapter one, verses two to four is put in the New Living Translation. It says this, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Why? For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be complete, you will be perfect and complete, you'll be mature, you'll be equipped, needing nothing. God is shaping us through the hardship he brings into our life. Uh, we're familiar with Romans chapter 8, verse 28. 
It says, we know that God causes all things, his providential control of everything, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, he's saying God is in the business of shaping us. He's molding us. He is growing us in our life. You remember the story of Job. We've referred to it before. And Job had one of the most intense situations where everything was taken from him just in a matter of a blink of a couple of eyes. All of his family, all of his wealth, all of his health. And as he's working his way through all of that hardship, he says this about God. He says, God knows the way that I take. God knows what's happening. God is providentially involved in it. And he says this, when he has tested me, when he's through molding and growing and shaping me, I will come forth as gold. And that's that whole picture we see often in Scripture of smelting where you take metals and you heat them and you apply heat to them because you want to burn out and bring out the impurities from it. What this is teaching us is that there is design and difficulty And the truth of the matter is that every single one of us who knows Jesus Christ weren't just called into the family of God and then we're just sort of coasting our way into heaven. No, we've all been enrolled in spiritual boot camp because his plan is to shape us. And knowing the spiritual needs of tomorrow for our life, he thrusts us into spiritual training today. And that's really what hardship is. Now, if you really think about that for a moment, we have deep inside of here a little bit of a reaction to that. You know, it's, it's a little minor hardship. Yeah, it's okay. But when significant hardship comes, a part of us are thinking, how dare he let that happen in my life? How dare he? We really think that way. And, and when we have those thoughts pop up, We need to remember something. He is the potter and we are the clay. We need to remember that he is the gardener and we are the branches and he's going to take the snips out and he's going to snip some things out of our life and into our life. We need to remember that he is the master, we are the servants. He is the teacher, we are the students. He was 25 and should have been the best year of his life. He married his sweetheart and carefully planned every detail of their wonderful honeymoon in Europe. On that honeymoon, during an intense thunderstorm, his beautiful bride, Annie, was struck by lightning. As a result, she would be paralyzed for the rest of her life life. On her honeymoon, this happens. For the next 39 years, her husband faithfully took care of her. They were never able to travel again, although they found that to be the most exciting possibility in life. Together, they collected postcards from all over the world. They were never able to see the beautiful sights themselves, but they enjoyed the pictures that friends would send them as they went out on their travels around the world. As a result of the paralysis, they were never able to have children or enjoy the life that they thought they would have together. On the honeymoon, it was a devastating 
loss. The husband was the great Christian theologian, Benjamin B. Warfield. And for close to 40 years, he taught his Bible classes and wrote his articles and took care of his wife. He was able to arrange his schedule so that he was rarely absent from her side for more than two hours at a time. But to those who knew this couple best, they were not victims. Like Joseph, they were victors. And I want you to listen to the words that B.B. Warfield wrote. He said, take any occurrence that happens, great or small, the fall of an empire or the fall of a sparrow. God is assuredly aware of everything that happens in his universe. There are no dark corners in it into which his all-seeing eye cannot pierce. There's nothing that occurs in it that is hidden from his universal glance. He is a God who infinitely cares, cares even about the smallest things. Did not our Savior speak of the sparrows and the very hairs of our head to teach us this? Well then, can it be imagined that, though infinitely caring, God stands impotently over against the happenings in his universe and he cannot prevent them? He does not stand helplessly by while they occur against his wish. What occurs, listen to these words, has been foreseen by him from all eternity and it succeeds in occurring only because its occurrence meets his wish. We know that it could not occur unless, listen to these words, it had a function to perform, such a place to fill, a part to play in God's comprehensive plan. And knowing that, we are satisfied. Benjamin Warfield found hope through hardship. And like Joseph, he embraced the principle that God is sovereign, his divine providence in their lives. And he and Joseph embraced this idea that God is shaping us. Samuel Rutherford once stated this. He said, we should praise God for the hammer, the file, and the furnace. What does that mean? Well, he went on to explain that the hammer of God molds us, the file shapes us, and the fire tempers us. And he goes on to say this, all three experiences are painful that we can praise God for them because we know and love the God who wields them. So, as we're finding hope through hardship, Joseph embraced the principle that God is sovereign. Secondly, the principle that God is shaping us. But there is a third principle that was embraced by both Joseph and B.B. Warfield. And that principle is they both chose to serve others over being self Focused. Now, I want you to look at that principle for a moment, men and women, because that is of radical importance when we find ourselves in the midst of hardship. Look at Genesis chapter number 40. First verse. We'll see this in the life of Joseph. It says there, 
then it came about after these things that the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. Now, I want you to notice a few things from these verses. Notice he's thrown into prison at the end of chapter 39, and then it says at the beginning, then it came about after these things. Like after these things, how, how long was that? How many months was Joseph in prison? Was it a year that he was in prison? But after an extended period of time, suddenly what happens is some events occur with the cupbearer and the baker for Pharaoh. Now, the, the, the cupbearer was the guy who would taste the king's drink and the king's food. He was the one, if, if, when everything was being served, he would go and take a little bit of everything, and then everyone would just sort of stand back and watch. Is it safe for Pharaoh to eat or drink here? And if he didn't keel over dead, then he could go ahead and eat. Pharaoh could. That's the cupbearer. He was a highly trusted individual. And very often, a cupbearer became a confidant to the king that he was serving because of the role that he played. And then you also have not only the cuff the cupbearer, but the chief baker. And it's just important for us to understand this guy who's described as a chief baker just wasn't the guy who was running the corner donut shop, you know, where he's baking pies and cakes and scones and torts. Uh, this guy was bigger than that. Uh, he, we would basically call him the number one chef. And if you're going to be the king, pharaoh of Egypt, you're going to pick the best chef in all of the land. And so this was the, the leading star of the food channel in, in Egypt, who is the number one chef, the, the chief baker. Well, what's going on? Well, it says in verse 2 that Pharaoh was furious with these two officials. And you think, well, what was going on? I mean, were there too many jalapenos in the chili? Uh, did they burn the Bernese sauce, you know? Uh, what, what really happened here? Why, why furious with them? And we don't really know the details. You have to read a little bit between the lines, and you have to look at the ultimate outcome for these two guys. But it appears that somehow Pharaoh became aware of a plot to eliminate him. I don't know whether they discovered some poison someplace. I don't know exactly what happened. But he realized that there was a plot against his life by someone close to him. And so he decides to take these two individuals and throw them into prison until the investigation can happen, which would eventually uncover which conspirator was the one who was involved in the plot? So they find themselves in prison. Now look at verse 3. So they were put in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. And the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and Joseph took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night. Each had his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. And he asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Now, now don't miss the facts here, Joseph comes to them in the morning, and what does it say? He observed them. 
He was paying attention to them and he observed that they were dejected and then he asks them, why are your faces so sad today? Now, now I just want you to notice a couple of things from this section. I mean, Joseph himself is in a horrible situation. He had reason to be dejected. He had reason to be down in the mouth. I mean, what is the hope of his future? As far as he knew, he could be stuck in prison forever. Secondly, I want you to just think about when we're in a situation like that ourselves, what is our flesh tendency? I don't know about yours, but my, mine is to become very self-focused, very absorbed on my situation. The tendency is to turn inward. You know, another day in prison, oh, woe is me. How long, how long, how long is this going to go on? But what we see here sheds some light into the heart of Joseph. He's paying attention to other people. He's observing them carefully. See, when we're freaking out and fretting in the middle of hardship, we become consumed with ourselves. But when we are resting in God's providence and sovereignty, when we are trusting that we're in a process of God shaping us through this hardship, guess what happens? We free ourselves up to care for other people and to bear other people's burdens. It's kind of interesting how this works. Joseph is going through the hardship of being in prison, and what does God bring across his path with some other people who are having the same experience? You know, that's the way God often works with hardship. I, I, I went, when I went through my whole cancer situation, for months afterwards, for years afterwards, I had all these people coming to me wanting to know what was the process like, how did you choose to do this, and so forth. That's just the way God does it. When we're in hardship, he's going to bring some other people who are experiencing a similar experience across our path. Notice, if you would, what happens in uh, verse 8 and following. So they basically say to him, we had a dream and we don't have anybody to interpret it. Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me. I'll pass it along. So the chief cupbearer, he's pretty anxious. I think he had a clear conscience. And he goes first. He tells his dream to Joseph. And he said, well, in my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me. And on the vine were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out and its clusters produced ripe grapes. And then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I, I took the grapes and I squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to him, well, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put... Pharaoh's cup into his hand, just as you had been doing, according to the former custom when you were his cupbearer. In three days, you're going to be back in your position again. Well, verse 16, then the chief baker saw that there had been a favorable interpretation given to the cupbearer, and I think this guy had a little bit of, he was a little more reluctant because he felt a little more guilty, but when he saw that, hey, that's pretty good interpretation. How about me? He said, I saw in my dream 
And, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head, and in the top basket there were some of all sorts of the baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. What does that mean? Then Joseph answered and said, well, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you, and I'm sure he's thinking, oh, this is sounding good, and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Well, that didn't turn out exactly like I had hoped. Well, notice what happens. Verse 20, it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he set up this huge feast. And he took the cupbearer, the chief cupbearer, and he restored, verse 21, the cupbearer to his office, and the cupbearer put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But Pharaoh hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Isn't that interesting? The conspirator had been uncovered during the investigation, and Pharaoh wiped the head chef out. Now, what I want you to notice is go back up to verse 14. When he gives this interpretation of the dream to the cupbearer, here's what he adds into him. He says to the cupbearer, would you keep me in mind when it goes well with you, and please do me some kindness. Would you mention me to Pharaoh? And get me out of this place? For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. Remember me, please. We'll look at this more in a couple of weeks. But verse 23 says, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him. But two years later, God is going to act again. Here's what's interesting to me in all this. Joseph was mistreated, very mistreated. But rather than becoming embittered, what did he do? He chose to be sensitive to other people. He chose to be a student of people. Now, here's kind of an intriguing question to ask in the flow of all this. Just humanly speaking, what if when these two guys showed up in prison and one of them eventually is going to lead him to Pharaoh, but what if he was just himself self-obsessed and self-focused and self-centered about how horrible woe is me is my situation? What if he had not been alert to other people? If he didn't have a thought about being sensitive to other people and serving other people in the midst of the hardship that he was right still in the middle of? Well, humanly, we'd have to say he would have missed an opportunity to be blessed by God. Now, here's the question I think we, we, each one of us need to wrestle with. Do I focus on other people's needs when hardship hits in my life? Do I focus on other people's needs when I am myself in the depths of difficulty? Joseph did, and he found hope through hardship. So 
So how is, how is he developing hope through all these things he's going through? Well, we have been saying today that he embraced three principles. First of all, he embraced the principle that God is sovereign. There's divine providence in what is going on in my life, Joseph said. He embraced the principle that God is shaping us. Even through the hardship and the difficulty, he is developing our faith, deepening our maturity, transforming us into more Christ-likeness. And then he embraced the principle of choosing to serve other people over being self-focused. Look at that third principle. It reminds me of a guy by the name of Jesus. Someone worthy of imitating. I want to close this morning by reading a piece that was penned by a guy by the name of A.M. Overton in 1932. It's entitled, He Maketh No Mistake. And in a moment, I'm going to read this to you, but I want to set a little bit of background. A.M. Overton was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Baldwin, Mississippi. He and his wife had three children, but she was giving birth to their fourth. And while his wife and the new baby were in childbirth, both of them died, leaving A.M. as a widow, widower, with these three children, aged 8 to 12. A few days after this event, during the funeral service, which was led by another pastor, A.M. Overton could be seen through the whole service writing. And that intrigued the pastor who was leading it, and afterwards he said to him, A.M., what were you writing? And what I'm going to read to you now is what he was writing during that service. And I just invite you to close your eyes and listen to what he writes. My father's way may twist and turn. My heart may throb and ache. But in my soul, I'm glad I know he maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray. My Hopes may fade away, but still I'll trust my Lord to lead, for he doth know the way. Though night be dark, and it may seem that day will never break, I'll pin my faith, my all in him. He maketh no mistake. There's so much now I cannot see my eyesight far too dim. But come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to him. For by and by, the mist will lift and plain it all he'll make. Through all the way, though dark to me, he made not one mistake. And I might add the postscript, and knowing that, we are satisfied. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing a closing song together. Father, we want to thank you. I'm just so grateful again for the Word of God. 
I'm so grateful for the perspective it brings us and so grateful for the hope it brings us, especially as we study the life of Joseph. And Father, we, we know, if we've been alive long enough, that the, the road of life involves hardship, the road of life involves suffering. And we would pray, as those who know you personally, that you would just remind us in those times to keep our eyes on you. We pray that we might remember your promises. Most of all, Father, we would pray that we would just rest in you as our God who cares and who is always there. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. 